Hi, this is Roberta, and you're listening to Art Blog Radio. I'm here today with Alan Edmonds at the Brandywine Workshop and Archives. Hi, Alan. How are you doing, Roberta? I'm good, thank you. Um, Alan is the director, as I said, of the Brandywine Workshop and Archive. He is an artist, a printmaker, and a community-spirited individual who has been collaborating with artists in, their, in the Brandywine's uh, visiting artist program for many years. Brandywine was founded in 1972 as a collective of artists and art teachers with a diversity-driven mission to support fine art printmaking and work with artists, students, and the public to teach about our global culture. So they've had a 47-year journey, and I want to hear more about that and hear about particular things and then swing around to this beautiful gallery that we're in called the Printed Image Gallery in which we're surrounded by enormous wood relief prints by John T. Scott. So, Alan, let's kick it over to you for a minute here and okay. tell us about collaboration and the way Brandywine yeah. began. Yeah, I, I was very fortunate. Uh, I was a student at Tyler School of Art, and I had in my uh, sophomore and junior year, I had the opportunity to study with Romas Fieslis. And Romas is uh, Lithuanian heritage. He immigrated to this country uh, in the late 40s. Um, a displaced person, actually, from, from World War II. Um, but having been persecuted uh, and suffered it as a displaced person um, and encouraged by people who helped him in his journey, um, he was uh, empathetic, I would say, to uh, the situation of students of color, you know, at Tyler School of Art. Uh, at Tyler School of Art, there were no black faculty when I went there uh, in the late uh, 60s, 67 I started. Uh, but this man had a, a lot of empathy uh, and, and a sense of uh, understanding and, and gave a lot of encouragement to his students of color and uh, people like John Dow before me and then, and then me. And he was teaching printmaking. So a lot of times, you know, students will gravitate towards a field when it's the people in the field that inspire them, you know, that they look at as role models. So if, you, your love of writing may come from a teacher who's passionate and loves writing. Your love of science, it's the same thing, you know. So, whereas I was going to be a graphic design major, I switched up and became a printmaking major. And that totally changed my life. The main thing about printmaking for me was that it was collaborative. Uh, that while you could pull a print by yourself, uh, if you were additioning a print for another artist, it was best to have assistance. Um, and if you look at the history of printmaking, Rembrandt and so forth, they had workshops. You know, one, one person didn't master all the skills. Somebody cut, somebody drew, um, somebody ran the addition. So this sense of collaboration was something I was really drawn to because for me, it was the opportunity to have instruction happen because I wanted to be a teacher always wanted to be a teacher. And so, in a collaborative setting, you may not be directly teaching, but you are sharing. You're having conversations about the process, about the results you're looking at, contributing to the uh, 
the strategy that you use, uh, and then also, you know, people have different levels of technical skill, and it's a shared situation. So my interest in education, my interest in education that happens out of a collaborative setting, uh, and then specifically the media printmaking. So around these interests, um, I was able to connect with local art educators. Uh, there was Paul Keene, a uh, uh, very distinguished uh, professor who started out University Arts, retired from Bucks County Community College. John Wade, who was teaching at Tyler. Clarence Wood, who was working at the Art Museum. And Bradley Smith, who also was teaching at Tyler in art education. So there were established professionals that I had access to. And we can, I, I think the initial contact was serving on a committee. There was an international festival being organized for uh, Lagos, Nigeria in 1973, I think it was. And uh, they wanted uh, regional districts. So the Philadelphia Mid-Atlantic District was headed by a group here in Philadelphia, and I was invited to participate because I was the only one that they knew that was passionate about printmaking. So it gave me an opportunity for a year to meet every month and work with these senior artists, and um, they embraced me. You know, they understood my passion. They saw that I was willing to work, and uh, they supported me, you know. And we started, I said, okay, if you support me, then let's do it officially and, and, and structurally and create an organization because there was a need for employment. Most artists, if they were surviving financially, it was because they were teaching. There were no galleries supporting artists of color. There were very few faculty positions. They were basically all white in practically all institutions. So there was little opportunity other than teaching. That's what most, particularly African-Americans, would do. They'd come out of college, they'd get a job doing something, but if they were gonna stay in a profession, they would teach. So the idea of employment was something, the idea of opportunity and exposure, uh, the idea of role models like this, this was for me, you know, what could we do that established Brandywine as a place where people could connect with people doing things, not just in Philadelphia, but beyond Philadelphia. So we started in 1975 doing the Visiting Artists in Residence program, and our first artist was Sam Gilliam from Washington, D.C., and the second artist was Romare Beard. How did an organization that started in 1972, now we know what their legacies are, and their legacies were pretty big back then. How did we get access to people like that? Paul Keene knew Romare Beard. Clarence Wood knew Sam Gilliam. And they introduced us and said, hey, we're trying to do this thing in Philadelphia. Will you come in and make some prints with us and help us get it branded and get it started? and also give you exposure to the artists of Philadelphia, you know, Bearden from New York, Gillian from DC. So that was extremely important that we not only bring artists from outside Philadelphia to work and produce quality work, but that would make it more attractive to the artists in Philadelphia to be part of something that it has broader perspective and context to it, you know. So having an artist you know, a few years out of school, working in the same studio that Gilliam and Bearden and Jacob Lawrence and Elizabeth Catlett and Jacob Landau and Jules Olitsky and Ken Nolan 
you know, that's how you brand it. You know, that's how you, even when they're in the space and they don't understand significance, who else has been there, who's come before them, at some point in their career, they start to, to, to understand how important it was and how important it is for them to be in the legacy, you know, of Brandywine. So as time moved on and we kept hosting these visiting artists locally as well as nationally and internationally, um, we started saying, well, now we have a collection. What do we do with it? And we were very particular about preserving it uh, and preserving the documentation of uh, the artists. Uh, they would come make a print if they did 10 color separation model art drawings. We'd keep those, you know, as a record so somebody could see how the artists made this print, what steps, what color selections were made. But documentation. So in the 80s, we decided that uh, in a worst case scenario, if Brandy Wine didn't cease to exist, what would happen to the legacy of what was done? So the legacy starts with the, the art, the evidence, okay, it's the art. And uh, the second thing is that the artists, that their presence at Brandywine was just one piece of their whole legacy. They've got their exhibition history, they've got their work history, they've got other prints they've done other place. And so we thought it was important that we establish satellite collections. And we started giving collections of our visiting artists prints to um, universities, museums, and heritage centers. Giving them? Giving them. That otherwise couldn't afford it. So we did a lot of historically black colleges. We gave to the Native American Center. Um, we gave a lot of prints to local groups there in, in some outside of the city that were doing fundraisers. So we could support them because prints are multiple. You know, you have the flexibility. And you also had the idea of keeping of the price of owning original work uh, being affordable for people that didn't have, you know, huge incomes. But it's also getting your brand out there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so uh, today we have 14 such collections. The most recent is Harvard University Museum collected 91 pieces. Um, Do they come and, in and oh, that's select? The, yeah, that's the whole thing. We don't give it to you. You got to come here, look through the collection, pick what your preference is. So if you're an Hispanic organization or Latino organization, you may want only Latino work. If you're African-American, you may want that. If you're Asian, but if you're a comprehensive museum like the Philadelphia Museum of Art or Rhode Island School of Design Museum, you'll pick something that's representative of the diversity, which is ethnic-wise, which is age, which is stylistically, subject matter, geographic location. When we talk about diversity at Brandywine, we, as the exhibit at the Art Museum, is called Full Spectrum. The full spectrum of diversity, you know, so that you have these senior most artists who could be as old as 80. The oldest artist we had come was 83. And the youngest artist was, uh, I think, 23, one or two years out of college. You know, but you have to have graduated or finished college. You can't come as a student, as a visiting artist. You can come as an intern and work in that setting, but you, you can't be, you know, you, you gotta at least come out and develop some kind of uh, evidence of your commitment to your career. So if a small group wants yeah. to approach you to mm -hmm. get a collection of prints, how would they do it? Well, it wouldn't be a small group. 
Well, let's say a See, community arts center. No, we don't do that. Because how they're going to preserve it and keep it, maintain it, and they change the leadership, and you don't know what's going to happen. We go only with established heritage centers, universities, which have um, capable university museum, like Arizona State University Museum, um, and, um, and art museums, you know, Philadelphia Museum of Art, you know. Because they, particularly in a university which teaches art educators, has a studio art program and an art history program. Now, some have the fourth element, which is an arts administration or museum management program. Okay. So, I mean, we're at the University of uh, uh, Texas in Austin. They have about, I think, 70 prints. And they have right now, they have an exhibition up of our work. So what happens is, if they have the curriculum, then, like if you're getting a doctoral, you're doing your doctoral studies, University of Texas, that's how, you know, we realized they had so many prints, um, is that uh, people will go and say, look, I, want, I gotta do it a self, I gotta curate an exhibition as part of my requirement, and I'll do the Brandywine exhibition. It's happened twice. It happened at Scripps College, and it happened at um, University of Texas. Um, and it's happening again at University of Texas. So that's one way the collection gets used. If you're in art education, and uh, you're Bernard Young at Arizona State University, head of the art education program, you'll go to your students and say, you know, some of you may end up in urban settings or settings where there's a predominantly minority population. And you need to have some materials ready and understanding to teach to that population, right? Where are you going to get it from? Well, in this class, you're going to get assignments in, say, Latino, Asian, African American, you know. I mean, all the textbooks give you Western European culture, but they don't necessarily give you a depth and a breadth of contemporary art that is diverse like that. So I'm going to give it to you. And you're going to do lesson plans, and we're going to see what happens. And I'll, he, there's an after-school uh, Saturday program they use it, you know. So you get examples. You get lesson plans from that. If somebody's in art education, art history, rather, uh, they may want to do their research. Uh, Harvard got a collection because they recently hired African-American art historians, but they didn't have enough depth of diversity in their contemporary collection. So a modest way of doing it and getting a large number of people by prominent artists was to do a gift purchase with Brandywine. See, so if the institution has a, a large enough budget, we prefer to do a gift purchase where we give you some and you pay for some. But the bottom line is, is that in these 14 institutions, as we hope to grow to 24, a Philadelphia artist has his work in museums in California, Rhode Island, and Texas, and that doesn't happen normally unless you have a person you know that goes there, or unless you have a show, or unless you take your work and you go travel and you show your work to curators and say, will you acquire this for your collection? So it's a lot of work. Brandywine does it for you because the, because the curators come to Brandywine and look at all that we have and select what they like. And if yours gets selected, 
That's the second time you've been selected because to be a visiting artist at Brandywine, you have to pass through a committee review. So you've passed a committee review, you've gotten the opportunity to come make prints. Now your examples of your prints are in the Brandywine collection. You've got half the edition that you can go put out there and sell and make some money from or show in exhibitions. Maybe you get them, you know, acquired somewhere. But Brandywine then takes it a step further and creates opportunity for your work to be shown to all these curators around the country. Now, at the same time, as we accumulated a larger collection of quality work and diverse work, we started doing traveling exhibitions. We self-traveled exhibitions on abstraction across the country. We've been to 35, well, uh, I think it's 35 foreign venues since the 80s, starting out with three shows that were done with the U.S. State Department that went to Latin America, the Middle and Near East, and uh, where was the other one? Oh, Africa, continent of Africa. We had a two-year traveling show in the continent of Africa. And then we did a show in, in, in Europe, in Swansea, Wales, where we had a, uh, like a, kind of like a cultural exchange for about four years from 86 to 90. And we sent Philadelphia artists to Wales, and they sent artists here, like, uh, I don't think that their murals exist anymore, but the Pioneer Mural Group came from Swansea, Wales, for a couple months and painted murals in Philadelphia in the, in, in the mid-80s. So it's, there's a lot of activity, but it all starts with the artwork. Mm -hmm. And then as you push the art, where you can share the legacy of the artist. So this is fascinating, and I love hearing you talk about it. You have mm -hmm. such passion, and I can feel it in the way you're, the words you're saying, and mm -hmm. all the rest. So, to one very simple little question: Where did the name come from? Brandywine, Brandywine Street. Oh, you were on Brandywine Street. We started out at 1923 Brandywine Street in the Spring Garden community a little two-story narrow garage. <clears throat> and what, what happened was by the time we incorporated and started thinking about the name, people were already saying, I'm going to Brandywine Street, I'm going to Brandywine Street. So I certainly didn't want it to be Brandywine Street Workshop, right? That sounded too lowbrow, right? So, and I didn't want to call it the Philadelphia anything because that localized it. And Brandywine, to those that know Brandywine, associated with the region. We had the Brandywine Racetrack, Brandywine River Museum, Brandywine Trads Ford, and, and then you had the, um, uh, the great artists from Trads Ford. Uh, but for people on the inside, they would think, this region. But then you brand the name. A lot of people don't know that IBM is an international business machine, mm -hmm. right? So whatever name you pick, you have to brand it, make the brand. But I just didn't want to say anything with Philadelphia. Everybody wanted Philadelphia. I said, no, we can't do that because we wanted people to think of us as beyond Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And so that, and so the, the name just made a lot of sense, you know, and then we 
uh, more recently in about the last five years, changed it from Brandywine Workshop to Brandywine Workshop and Archives because the archives had become so central to what we were now about, what we had evolved to become. Yeah. So you talked a lot about the collections, and yeah. you said there are 14 out there now. In 14 existence. satellite collections across the country. Which is amazing. And then you have done shows with them overseas and they, whatnot. Yeah. Um, how big are your editions when you print? You're, you, well, we, we you started support. out in, in the, in the, from 72 to 82, we did screen printing. And editions might have been 30 or 40 because it's labor-intensive screen print. But we also, in addition to being labor-intensive and time-consuming, uh, we weren't getting the results that we needed. The diversity of the artists meant that pinpoint registration, thin lines, and all, even though we were doing photo screen printing, it was just certain limitations. So we wanted to go to lithograph, uh, planographic surface, where you can hold more detail and you got more options. And we switched to offset lithography. Philadelphia, Gene Feldman, Feldman Press, had done some experiments with uh, his commercial litho press in printing artwork. We took it to another level. You know, we, we, we did what we were doing in screen printing, which is hand-drawn mylars, and each mylar would represent a color. We would take those same mylars and put them on aluminum plates and print them on a, a cylinder offset press. We had a one, at one time, we had a one-color large format and a two-color large format. And that meant there was a strategic and economic benefit to it. You could print more colors, larger editions, and you could get the artists in and out quicker. So instead of taking two, three weeks to edition a print, we could set our residency at one week. So can you imagine uh, one week an artist coming in and doing an edition of 100 prints in 10, 12 colors. It's amazing. That was important, though, because that meant that we weren't just getting college professors and well-established artists who could afford to take the time out. They wouldn't get fired from their job. If you were a good artist, but you were waitressing or working a regular blue-collar job, because that's what you could get. You could lose your job and you lose income by not going to work for a week or two to take, take a residency at Brandywine, right? But a week, most people that had regular jobs get two, three weeks, sometimes a month vacation. So now you're taking a month vacation. I mean, you're taking a week of that vacation time. Now, if you're married, that's another situation. We had a young lady from Texas I picked her up at the airport and the first thing she said, she said, you don't know what this means to me. My husband is a well-established artist. He pays all the bills uh, and I got two small kids at home. You can't imagine what it took for me to plan the schedules of pickup from daycare and school, the food and this one thing. And, and I had my, my, my parents helping, my husband had to step up so that I, another well-trained, talented artists would have a chance to move and do something to get a, away for a week, Alan, she was saying. I mean, that's the first thing she said when I, when I met her. She said, this, this means the world to me. Um, Letitia Huckabee was her name, her husband, Cedric Huckabee. They're now doing shows together. 
and she's, she's a really, really good artist. The kids have gotten a little older, and she's able to spend more studio time. So, so on it the was basis, transformative to her. Oh, yes. On the basis of, uh, uh, there's a definite distinction between the opportunities afforded uh, married women with kids and, and, and keeping their, giving them opportunities to keep their career going. Uh, or people that have jobs where they can't take two, three weeks and focus selfishly on themselves, but that time has to be quality time with family. So we took all this into account and said, look, if we can do offset printing, we can get them in and get them out, and we get more resolution, we have more options, the colors, the transparency, the colors, and we started making all these prints based upon transparent colors. And we, and we did that for about 20 years. And then um, what happened is uh, technology changed, digital printing, cliche, and all that started happening. And um, we were challenged. We were challenged by the lessening or the diminished interest in traditional printmaking. Mm -hmm. And um, people saw great results with offset lithography could push into, you know, uh, laser printing, uh, color digital printing. Uh, so we, we started transitioning. We got away from the cylinder press and had an opportunity to get a flatbed litho. And we did that, and we could do things with scale that we couldn't do with the cylinder press mm -hmm. because we went from a 2230 format to a 3850. Mm -hmm. And we could do large prints now. So where we were challenged only one when where technology was taking the field, we decided to pivot a little bit and do things that were could look at an expanded notion of what a print is. And that's where we're at today. You know, using the tools that are available to us, we're working on projects with Willie Cole, which will be a pop-up print. We're working on a project with Sam Gilliam, which will be a large constructed print, you know, uh, and using uh, laser cutting linoleums. Uh, we did a piece with Elana Sui last year with the, the color separations were um, uh, generated through digital printing and stuff. So, you know, that's where we're at. So you're transitioning and and you're evolving now into yeah, the Yeah, you have to. If you world. stay static, you die. You have to evolve. And coming from an organization that was rooted in education, and education meant that it's not just what you give in a classroom, giving kids an opportunity to see something different, to see how art functions in the community with wall murals and art parks and things like that, and getting different generations involved in, in, in the development of art and community. Uh, you know, we were nationally recognized for doing that when we did it. We worked with senior citizens, boys clubs, girls clubs. Well, you had uh, the CETA program The CETA program, the yeah. 70s. I mean, the CETA program paid the salaries. Uh, there was, we hired a lot of people who had never worked full-time in art, and they had bachelors and masters, but they never worked full-time in art. We gave them full-time jobs, and CETA paid for, government paid for the salaries. We went out and fundraised. Everybody had plenty of materials. Uh, artists wanted to do a sculpture, 
and we contacted Pico. Pico gave us some used telephone poles. We created a, a sculpture out of telephone poles. I mean, all kinds of things were possible because the salaries were paid for, you know. And the exposure, we gave them, we gave them workshops for themselves, professional development workshops. Uh, we did exhibitions of the work of their students, um, you know, and got some people really excited about the fact that they had an, a fine art education, you know, and they could do something with it, you know. Um, we made sure it was diverse. We had black, white, Asian, Hispanic artists in the program, you know, and, and the interaction that that created, you know, build community, however you want to define community. So, Alan, you have a new online project that I want yeah. you to talk about. Yeah. It's called the Brandywine Portal Project. Yeah, well, actually it's called, it's trademark brandywine.art. Okay. But what it is, it's a digital portal that we're developing that's going to connect all the satellite collections. So you go into it, and if you're looking to see what the University of Texas has contributed, there'll, there'll be a pull down. You can go to that that part, that segment of the website. There'll be lesson plans, videos. We have high school students that have animated artwork. Uh, presentation is very important. Kids like to be entertained. They got short extent, uh, attention span. So we figured rather than looking at a static piece of artwork, let's take a piece of artwork created out of an animation, and at the end of the animation, you see the finished artwork. But the animation tells the story, so you pick narrative work, and it tells the story of the artwork. You know, one of the best ones we did was Ibrahim uh, Miranda from Cuba, because he's living, see, a lot of the artists are living, so we get first person, we say, look, this is what the kids have come up, does this match your narrative? Do you want us to tweak it in it? And they get a chance to participate. So we did that with an artist in Arizona, an artist in Cuba, and all this stuff. This is what the internet affords you. That's part of the transformation, using the tools that are available, you know. So do so, you still need a building when all yeah, is said and yeah. done? Yeah, you need a building because that's your legitimacy. You can't, you know, people give you a business card and there's nothing behind it. They may be running the business out of the kitchen, you know, and they never want to meet you in the kitchen, so they meet you at a coffee shop or something, or you have co-working spaces, you know. When you have, if you've been 47 years old, you should be able to walk in and have something tangible to look at, okay? Well, you Yeah, I agree. And yeah. uh, although not all of us can live up to having a building as Artblog, which works well, that's being strategic. space. But that's being strategic. You know, you, you buy a home, you figure out how I'm gonna afford a home. I have to have money, I save a job. But the whole Avenue of the Arts piece, that was Brandywine. The Academy was the Academy Center. That was to get the Kimmel Center built. It didn't extend past Locust. It was to get the a new building for the orchestra and the ballet and everybody else. The way to make it feasible was to expand the project. Along comes Brandywine and says, we're buying this land and the land that the Clef Club is on. Okay, we bought all these properties from the corner to the paint store to the building in the back. This was 1990, we started 1989, we started the purchases around 91. And since we were doing this, we went to the city planning commission and said, 
why don't you redraw the map to Washington Avenue because we know that the superintendent intends to try to get a high school for creative performing arts built at Broad Christian and the ballet had moved from Fairmount Avenue down to Broadens. I said, so look, you got the inn anchors at Broaden, Washington, the ballet and the, and, and the high school will eventually be there. You got Brandywine in the middle, right? Why don't you just extend the map? And that's literally how it happened. They said, okay, so we'll draw, make the Avenue Arts go to Washington Avenue. It didn't cost them any money. <laughs> we did all the planning for them. We worked with the community organizations. There used to be the Martin Luther King Housing Development over there. We worked with them. We, we worked in the community here. Because if you're going to create a cultural card of what happens on either side, right? Gentrification will come, but it'll come in a, in a, in a planned, strategic way so that people just don't get thrown out of their homes. There was 400, uh, there was a thousand vacant lots and homes in this neighborhood when we, when we started. Okay. So then Rendell became governor. He said, I'll give you $70 million. $50 million went to the orchestra. Twenty-one and twenty-two million went to groups like Wilma, Brandywine, the Clef Club, a few groups on North Broad Street because they needed those votes, you know, from the legislators in North Philly. You know, the Philadelphia Legislative Caucus got together with a Philadelphia governor and they made it happen. But the planning had to start years before Rendell even became governor. You know, see. So this the story that doesn't get told because it's not important, you know. You see, we look at what's here and we think it's always been here, you know. I don't leave Philly and, and think one day I'm going to drive down the parkway and not see the art museum. That's how you build legacy and permanence. Location is so important. You can't be moving constantly from one location to another. So we bought enough property and, and, and working with the planning commission that the Avenue of Arts, the signage and everything went all the way to Washington Avenue. Wow, that's a great success story. Well, it was needed. That's leadership. It was needed. We were talking earlier about Brandywine as an organization has always shown leadership. As an organization. We've shown leadership because at a time when people were doing ethnic specific, we were doing diversity. Always have been. And that's the strongest leadership. Now everybody's trying to catch up mm -hmm. and diversify, right? Because the population has changed, the dynamics, global dynamics has changed. But if you, if, you, if you only look at what's in front of you, I was very fortunate. I had these advisors in Philadelphia and around the country. Uh, you know, we could sit and we could talk about and we, we could dream about the future, but be practical. There's a thing in, in planning called environmental survey, right? And that's where you survey your environment and you understand that art doesn't, and art institutions don't function independent of religion, uh, business, transportation, housing, healthcare. We're all sectors of, of a society and there's interconnectedness between us and, and we try to one of the big things we did with CETA was make sure we tried to show that. We had artists 
not only at the art museum, but we place them in hospitals. You know, what, what could an artist benefit in a hospital? And it was wayfinding. I forget the artist's name. She did a thing where you drop balls and it shows you where to go for what service. You know, and, and that's how you demonstrate our value the same way transportation adds value to housing and makes healthcare more accessible and stuff. But nobody wants to have these conversations because they think all they're doing is making art. No. Well, let's end it on that note. It mm -hmm. was a very kind of to the ramparts note that we ended on, which I like that because it goes along with a lot of what else you said today. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you so much, Alan Edmonds, for pleasure. speaking with us. This is Roberta Fallon. Thank you for listening to Art Blog Radio. Okay. Good.